Good to see you all. Glad you could uh, be here. Glad I could be here. Uh, I'm so thankful to see you each. Let's do some shouts. What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. And that's the you that are around you. So you got to love them. So you can even glance left and right as you say that. Uh, so good morning, folks. Uh, thanks for joining us at JRC. And I want to thank you for prioritizing uh, God in your weekly uh, sort of planning and your weekly thinking that you've decided to come here to church and uh, make God as part of the church. And I know that that's a time commitment that's uh, uh, sometimes difficult to make. And so I want to thank you for making that uh, priority and, and being here with the church family for weekly worship. And so so glad that you're here for that. We're in our third week of Jesus's objects where we've been uh, looking at some cool uh, pl- times where Jesus takes ordinary objects and he makes some extraordinary spiritual claims f- with them, uh, showing us spiritual truths by these objects. We had a needle and a camel showing that uh, it's impossible to go to heaven on our own, but, but God does the impossible on the regular. And then we saw a coin uh, where Jesus said, give to the world what's the world's, but give to God what's God's. So powerful. And this week we're going to talk about another object. We're going to talk about salt. Jesus is going to use salt today. And so we're going to look at it this way. There's going to be the setup, then there's going to be the object, the point, and then the response. So setup, object, point, response, and that's been the same for the last two weeks, and and next week it'll be that way as well as we do that this series. And so today we're uh, looking in Luke chapter 14, and Jesus is going to talk about salt, and he's he's going to have this really uh, sort of intense conversation with people. Wow, that was intense. That was to wake Isaiah up in case he says he gets sleepy by the end of the intro. (laughs) And so uh, uh, what Jesus is going to be talking about, what does it take to follow him? And so let's check this out. Here's the setup part, and this is in Luke 14, 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So uh, Jesus, at many points in his career, seems a bit dubious of the large crowds. And so it starts out, there were a large crowd following him. And and Jesus, on many occasions, he either tries to avoid the large crowds, he tries to dissuade large crowds, he tries to, uh, sometimes he'll just leave abruptly and not tell them where he's going, and the crowd's like, where'd he go? Jesus seems a bit dubious of the large crowd. I don't know about, but I'm not Jesus, but I kind of like large crowds. I like if church is full. I like, you know, if I go speak somewhere and their church is full. Like, that's kind of exciting for me. But Jesus, he's a little dubious of it. And, and as he looks around at the crowd, he says, hey, crowd, I want you to know something. Here it is. Unless you hate your father and mother in comparison to me, unless you hate your brother and sister, you cannot be my disciple. This would be shocking, but Jesus is not interested in crowds. He's interested in disciples. And his statement proves that. He cuts the chase and says following him means putting him number one, hating your father and mother, even that. And some of us here, maybe you hear like, hate your father, and you're like, well, I don't like my dad anyway, so that's good. You know, no problem. I'll just follow that one. But that's not his point. Imagine um, with me a person coming to, the Christ, uh, coming to Christ in the Middle East, uh, you know, in a, in a very strict Muslim country, where someone comes to Christ, or, or maybe even a strict Buddhist uh, family in, uh, amongst our friends in Thailand. 
and someone decides to come to Christ. Imagine that person then uh, telling their family. That person's decision to follow Jesus may lead to rejection from their family. It may cause their family to hate them. It may introduce in their family relationship this concept of, I hate you, or I hate what you're doing, or I hate this decision that you've made. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be willing to bear that. That might happen to you, where your family hates this decision that you've made. And that's a real possibility. It was in that time, and I think in today's time, it's also a possibility. And so the person would have to ask, is Jesus worth the risk? Well, he's not if he's just a man. If he's just a man, then, then he's not worth, worth risking my family over, because family is the most important thing, right? As Dom always says, family. Right? Family's the most important thing in this life, except for God. Is Jesus worth it? You know, one of the ways I convinced my uh, wife, Hedgen, to marry me, uh, it was a long process. So many of you know it took over 12 years for me to uh, try to uh, help her understand that this would be a good decision. And then, uh, uh, so one time, uh, so when we were dating, so she finally agreed to date me and uh, this sort of stuff, and we're dating, and uh, there was this really suave phrase that I used which I think really sealed the deal in terms of her deciding to marry me. And so one time we were talking and I told her, I will never love you as much as I love Jesus. I said, you will always be my second love on this planet. And she was like, ooh, that's like so sweet. That's like words to my soul. Because you know what she said? I will never love you as much as I love Jesus. So it is good to hear that we're on the same page. And that was a beautiful thing. But if that first phrase that Jesus was teaching right there didn't drive people away, the next one certainly will. So he says, you got to hate your father and mother. Next one he says this, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So he tells the crowds that they must be willing to die. This would be like a strong declaration. In Roman times, uh, in good company, when you were with a sophisticated or, or reasonable people, you would never talk about crucifixion. It would, it would be uh, uncouth of you to say this kind of thing. And if you were giving a public address to people, you wouldn't mention it. It's sort of something that they did, but it was the absolute most horrific thing that the Romans would do to someone, where they would nail them naked on a, on a pole so all their family and friends could see them naked there, and they just hang there, and they hang there, and they hang there till they, they die. It always results in death. And so when Jesus says, take up his, your cross, there's nothing religious about this. There was no spiritual experience to this. That Jesus hadn't died on the cross, so it wasn't like even a like, religious committed thing. All it was was torture, humiliation, and death. And he says, you want to be my disciple? You've got to do this thing that is unspeakable in polite company. You've got to be willing to be not just die in like a, whoa, cool flurry, right? Like sometimes I imagine if someone's going to shoot my wife and I jump in front of her, oh, and I took it, oh, that's so good, and I die fast, and it's not that painful, right? But this isn't that. He says you've got to be willing to take the worst that the Roman Empire has to offer to you if you want to be my disciple. 
Now, for us, like we read this, and it seems like hyperbole because it doesn't really ever cost that in America. But that isn't true across our current world. There are places in this planet where if someone decides to choose Jesus, that it could mean their actual life. They have to look at this verse, and they have to take Jesus' warning seriously, where they ask themselves, some of our friends in the Middle East, some of our missionaries who are there sharing with people, and they share Jesus with them, and they say, if I make this commitment to Jesus, it could cost me my life. And they won't be cool about it. They won't be quick and, like, heroic. It could cost me something quite dear. Is he worth it? Jesus continues, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? See if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation, you're not able to finish it. Everyone's going to see it, and they're going to ridicule you, and they say, that person began to build, and they weren't able to finish. Or suppose a king's about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with his 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Like if he's not able to, then he's going to send a delegation while the other's far, uh, still a long way off, and he'll ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus asks us to give up everything in pursuit of him. Go in eyes wide open, but know that those who are not willing to give up everything cannot be my disciple. Is he worth it? So Jesus' three statements, hate your father and mother, be willing to die a horrific death, give up everything. I mean, that seems like the fastest way to ruin your movement to me. Like if you're trying to start a religious movement, this does not seem like the way. If you preach this sermon in church, that's the quickest way to collapse your attendance is to say this kind of stuff on a Sunday morning. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds outrageously demanding unless unless he's worth it. Unless Jesus is so precious and his gift so incredible that he's worth everything in this life. Following Jesus, it may cause you to lose your job. It'll probably mean that you lose some friends. There's going to be a cost. Are you willing to pay it? Following Jesus may cause you to be on the wrong side of popular culture. Following Jesus may make some of your own family members avoid you. Are you prepared to pay it? Sometimes we think Christianity is like adding Jesus to our lives. So like maybe you got in a bad spot or things weren't going really well for you and you say, God, I just need a little bit of you in my life. I need to help me out in this area. And so you think that, that God is just a little bit of an add-on during your time of trouble. Or maybe, maybe you've gotten a, like a little lost or adrift and you've been lonely or depressed and you're sitting here in depression and you go, I just need a little bit of, I just need a slice of God in my life. That's what I need. I need a little bit of God. Christianity is not adding Jesus into your life. It's surrendering our lives completely to Jesus. It's a total and absolute transformation of who I was to become who he wants me to be. And there's a cost to following Jesus, and there's a consequence to not following Jesus. To follow Jesus may cost my temporary earthly life. It may cost me something here. In fact, it's going to cost me something here. But there's a consequence if I don't follow Jesus. I may lose my earthly life if I, if I follow Jesus, but I will gain an eternal life. If I choose not to follow Jesus, I'm going to lose my eternal life. 
but I gain my temporary one. And I sort of think about it, and I'm like, hmm, I'll take the eternal life. This one's just temporary. I got, you know, another 10 years max or something. You know, I don't know how much long I got left, but, you know, with 70, 90, 100, 110, I'll take the eternity over that. Now, I want to be really clear right here and really careful. Uh, Jesus wants everyone to come to him, absolutely. And he freely offers salvation to all who would believe and give their lives to him. Like, you don't have to get right first. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to change yourself first. That's not what I'm talking about at all. It's his love and goodness, his grace and mercy alone that saves us. And that's his beautiful gift to us. But our part of it is that we have to come to him and we have to be willing to say, Jesus, I want to make you the Lord of my life. That means you have to be willing to say, God, I can't do this on my own. I want you to do it. I want you to be in charge. We live for him. He doesn't live for us. He's not our genie in the bottle. We rub a lamp, we give him our prayers, and he answers those. That is not how it is. We can come to Jesus just as we are, but we must come to Jesus allowing him to make us into who he wants us to be. It can't be, okay, Jesus, I'm going to come to you as long as you allow me to hold on to this particular sin. Or God, I'm going to come to you mostly, but I'm going to keep secret or hold back a couple of these things. I'm going to mostly give you everything except my kids going to college. I really want them to go at least to a UC because, you know, we're Asian. So UC minimum, but Ivy League's probably better. But everything else, God, you can kind of have. But I just have to have this study piece. I just have to have this piece. But that's not how it works. That's not what giving... Uh, Making Jesus the Lord of your life means. The Lord of your life means, Jesus, what do you want to do? Let's do it. Where do you want to go? Let's go. What do you want to have for me? I'll give it. My life, my wealth, my kids, my my sanity, my, my freedom. Everything is yours. See, Jesus says, like, you can't keep areas separate. That's not coming to me. That's having Jesus as an add on. And Jesus isn't an add on, He's the everything. So now, after all that, we get to our object. So he's just said all this like intense stuff, right? And then he says this, salt is good. Oh, mm-hmm. Great segue, Jesus. I see you're a master communicator, right? He's just given this analogy of battle tower being built, and they've got to be willing to die, hate our family, but then salt is good. Uh-huh. What? This doesn't even make any sense, okay? So, but let's go with it. That's our object lesson. So here we go. I got uh, from Peter's Gourmet, got a little packet of salt, right? I got that. He had lunch there on Friday with the staff. Got a little salt. Can't see that one. What do we do? Oh, man. Stole that from the wife who married me. Can't see that. Oh, bang, got a bigger one. So that's how, there you go. That's apparently our theme. So guess what's going to happen next week? We can't probably avoid it, right? We're going to have some sort of that variation of that. So uh, salt is good. Okay, salt's good. So, salt is good as a preservative, uh, especially in this time. They didn't have, this is pre-refrigeration, so they didn't have refrigeration. So if you salt, dry and salt your meat, it'll make the, allow the meat to last much longer and it won't rot. So salt's good as a preservative. Okay. Salt's good tasting. Salt's good in food, right? Your eggs are a little bland. Boom, throw a pinch of salt. Boom, those eggs taste way good. Hard-boiled egg, not that nice. Dip that bad boy in a salt plant. Oh, that's a good good hard-boiled egg right away, right? Add a pinch of salt. 
salt. What a strange object for what he has just been saying. But wait, there's more, as every good infomercial says. It says salt is good, comma. There's a comma here. Let's see the point. So here's the point. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the it, it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So salt is useful, whether it be for taste or uh, for preservative. It doesn't really matter. The point's the same. Salt is useful, but if it's no longer doing the thing that it's supposed to do, then it ends up being worthless, fit to just be thrown out. So here's the point. Salt is only useful when it is acting in the nature of salt. Likewise, a Christian is only useful when they're acting in the nature of Christ. When Christ is the Lord of their life, not them the Lord of their own life. So what would you do if you had a pile of salt that had no flavor and it couldn't preserve things? It's just useless. If you put flavorless salt in the soil, it would actually just ruin the soil because if you put salt in soil, plants can't grow. Saltless salt isn't even good for the manure pile. At least you could use manure for fertilizer, but what are you going to do with this white, useless powder? If you throw it on the manure, it's going to ruin the manure. Jesus is saying, if you only look like salt, but you don't have any of the usefulness of salt, you don't have any of the commitment of the salt, then what use are you to Jesus? If you can't follow Jesus fully, then what does he have for you? In one of my favorite uh, explanations of any sermon, uh, my, my favorite preacher is, uh, current alive preacher is Francis Chan. And uh, he explains this verse this way. And I, I love how he said it, so I'm going to try to imitate him rather than show you a clip of him. So, so he says, he, no, Francis Chan, ball, hands out, crouches. I know, I watch a lot of Francis Chan. Come on. He's like, here's what he says. Jesus is saying, I can't throw you into the dirt. And when he says you're not even that, he says you're not even fit for the manure pile. Do you understand what he's saying there? Jesus is saying you would ruin crap. So if I had a pile of crap and you were standing on it, I'd be like, get off my crap. You're ruining it. Because I have use for that. At least that can fertilize soil. But you, that's Francis Chan. Everybody, ooh, so good. Love Francis Chan. He says, you would ruin crap. That's so good. He said, so what good are you? If you're saltless salt, you ruin crap. You're not even good enough for that. But, but you being partially committed, wanting to do your, things your way, wanting to have Jesus as an add-on, not being willing to hate others compared to Jesus, not being willing to give up your own life, not being willing to count the cost and give everything. That kind of person, he says, that's salt, that's flavorless salt. It's, it's, it's preservingless salt. It's useless. What good is that? And in fact, it's probably even more damaging to the cause to say that, that I'm a Christian but I don't really follow Christ only partially. 
And then what's that become? That becomes a lot like people will say in America, I don't want to be a Christian because of all those hypocrites. I don't want to be a Christian because all the abuses that have come from pastors and churches and and all the the damage that's caused from them. And, And they're probably right. Because those persons are acting like, they're not like salt, they're acting like arsenic more than salt. Because maybe they they weren't willing to go all the way. And Jesus says, it's got to be all the way. It's not half salt, half arsenic. You've got to have all salt. A disciple without commitment is not a disciple. A disciple without Jesus being first over everything is not a disciple. A disciple unwilling to lose friends or status or, or lose their very life is not a disciple. There is a cost to being a disciple. Christians are distinct, and we, when we fail to be so, we just fail. And I, I believe that each of you, and sort of take roll count in my head about our church, and think about you, and I think about especially like our young generations, millennials and Gen Zs, and they get a bad rap sometimes, but, but I think people are looking for a big call, a huge commitment, something that's worth giving your all to, something that's like, true and real and tangible and and altering in our life's reality. And I'll answer the question I've asked several times, is Jesus worth it? I would say Jesus is worth it. And I'm not scared to give this sermon at our church because I think that there are incredibly strong Jesus followers at this church, strong and getting stronger. And not just our older ones who, uh, we have some fantastic, great older uh, men and women uh, who who lead us by example and who have given their all for many, many years. In fact, many of them their whole lives have lived for Jesus and we watch them, how they have navigated. But, but I see it in some of our young folks. I was with Annalie Chan when she accepted Jesus. Well, uh, she wouldn't do it and uh, she had to go home and think about it because she had a bunch of questions and she's a really contemplative girl and, and uh, maybe around fourth grade, third or fourth grade. And uh, she wasn't easy of a believes, and she said, okay, what's this about? What do I have to do? What will it mean? Da, 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 da. And, and I, I was able to share that with her when she was very young, and then able to walk with her when she got baptized and decided to follow Jesus and, uh, fully and, and show everybody. And then, you know, just recently she started to serve the, in the adult group and serve the adults. And then last couple of weeks I heard she's leading parts of the youth group and this kind of stuff. And, and she may be really quiet, but... I think she's like all the Chons. The Chons are really stubborn folks. Mom, Dad, Arabella, Amelie. That, that sort of the, that's how they work. That's how they roll. I, she may be really quiet. She's not really forceful or out there. She doesn't shout a lot. But, but I, I guarantee you, I think she thinks this way. That she says, I'm willing to give it all up for Jesus. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to, to die for him. To, even if my family rejected me, I'm going to hold on to this because that's the kind of person that she is. I see it not in her only. I see it in our other young people. I see it when, when our youth group gathers and the commitment they have to God. It's so powerful. And so I'm not scared to give this message at church because I don't think it's a deterrent at all because I don't think I'm talking to the crowds. When I look at our church, I think I'm talking to the disciples. Men and women have already made that decision. And so for most of us, it's like, yeah, I am that. And, and it's a reminder, you are this. Continue to live out this reality. Don't let, for some of you who've maybe been a Christian for 5, 10, 15 years, don't let 
the saltiness fade. Let the saltiness in terms of attitude fade, but don't let the saltiness of Jesus fade. Remember your true and real commitment. Remember that you were willing to count the cost, and you said, yep, I'm all in with Jesus. I could go down the list, and uh, I know I look at your face right now looking out, and that there's not anyone in here that, I, that I'm worried about. I am so excited because I think that you guys hear this message correctly. So here's the reaction. The reaction is this, Luke 15, 1 and 2. Sometimes you don't turn the chapter so you don't realize that's part of the other part. Now the tax collectors and the sinners, they were gathering all around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Those needing hope and purpose. Those who didn't think they have it all together. Those who were not confident in their own righteousness. They gather. Others just mutter. See, Jesus was calling disciples, not crowds, in 30 AD. And he's calling disciples in 2023. He's calling each of you who hear this this morning in person or some of our friends that are online, is he worth it? That's a question you must ask yourself, and you each get to decide that. So I want to take a minute and assess. For those of you who are believers, maybe you have to renew your heart. Maybe it's been a while since you thought through this, and you're like, maybe I, maybe I, I do believe this. Maybe I haven't been living it out. And for some of you who aren't following Jesus yet, think about his call, his challenge. How do you want to respond? Is he worth it? And so would you take a moment and just pray with me and self-assess and, and think about it.